Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, bug bounties. We know that hacking can land you in jail, but could it also land you a fat paycheck? Joining me to discuss this is Katie Masaurus, founder and CEO of Luda Security. Katie, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off by defining the title of today's episode. What is a bug bounty? Well, a bug bounty is paying hackers in exchange for vulnerability information. So it's essentially a bounty on the head of each bug. And the bug being a virus or someone trying to hack in? Um, It's usually a flaw in some code, uh, maybe a flaw in a website. It's a weakness that can be used to exploit and take uh, information that doesn't belong to you. So we've seen bug bounty programs in both the public and private sector. So let's start with the private sector. You used to work at Microsoft and you played an instrumental role or maybe the role in, uh, in setting up the company's first program. So what does that look like for a giant global tech company like Microsoft? How did they do something like this to encourage people to find vulnerabilities, disclose them, and then get paid? Well, uh, Microsoft itself was not the first to offer a bug bounty program. Uh, the first was actually Netscape back in the mid-90s. and they offered Netscape, f- that yeah. is a name you don't hear all the time. That's right, <laughs> taking you to the way back machine of the, of the internet. Um, but it was $500 per security bug. And nothing really new came up in the bug bounty, under the bug bounty sun for a number of years until about 2010 when Google started offering bug bounties. And it was around that time, 2010, that I was first asked the question inside of Microsoft, hey, Katie, if Microsoft were to offer a bug bounty, what would it look like? Three aching years later, uh, the first bug bounty program of Microsoft was launched. And what that actually looked like, it was not just one bug, one bounty. There was some of that going on with Internet Explorer. But actually, it was $100,000 for new exploitation techniques. So we weren't looking for individual bugs per se, but we were looking for new ways to exploit bugs that either we knew about or we didn't know about yet, but new methodologies. And that was worth $100,000, and that program is still running today. And that was an important distinction because in your article, you point out that one bug, one bounty, that's an individual vulnerability that can be fixed, but that's not necessarily going to secure your system that much. But an entire class of attack could be mitigated if you reveal a new hacking technique. So that's where Microsoft was probably the first to say, not only do we want you to disclose this tiny little bug that could be uh, exploited, and then you might try to find as many bugs as possible to get paid the most. But really, we want you to figure out a new way of hacking us and then tell us about it. That's right. And one of the key things there was that the intellectual property of that technique remained in the hands of the security researcher. So what they were really selling to Microsoft was a license to that technology. The reason that was important to me um, was because I wanted to make sure that if there was a brand new exploitation technique that a hacker had found, that they were able to potentially monetize uh, defensive ideas on that further, that they would potentially be able to start a company that may be protected against that new technique, that they would still own the intellectual property. Um, And so they wouldn't lose anything by giving that to Microsoft in exchange for $100,000, which a lot of people thought, oh, that's too, that's too little, that that won't be enough for a new technique. But if you think of it in terms of it's a licensing fee, in a way, you know, it could be seed money for your own little startup that's making money off of the defensive ideas that come out of that technique. 
It's uh, there's there's so many capitalistic things going on uh, in the bug bounty system now. In the absence of a bug bounty program, what do you think people would do with this information? Because if the idea is that we want to incentivize hackers, security researchers, to find vulnerabilities, to find techniques, and disclose them to companies, if they didn't have that option, if they couldn't cash out and make money for their discovery, some of these brilliant discoveries that deserve compensation or rewards or accolades, whatever. What would they do with this information? Well, every hacker has a choice with every single bug they discover. And the choices range from do nothing, just sit on it, and nobody finds out about it until maybe somebody else finds out about that same bug and uses it in an attack. Um, so there's the do nothing option that doesn't really make a lot of people safer. There is the uh, try to make money from it, either directly by exploiting it, and then you know perhaps it's a flaw or a weakness in a financial system. You know those big bank heists that happened um, <clears throat> not not too far, uh, not too recently, and um, and maybe it's uh, try and sell it to someone who is willing to buy it. That's another way to monetize it. And then there is the old choice, which was give it to the vendor to fix for free. Um, just give your work for free and hope for the best and the vendor will fix it and you'll have this warm, fuzzy feeling that apparently doesn't pay any bills. Really? So, yeah. So th that, those, you know, those are pretty much the choices. So what I really hope to, to help create in the world are more defensive ways for hackers to make money from those discoveries. I'm guessing the same kind of guy who gives up a vulnerability for free is the same kind of person who edits a Wikipedia article, right? You know? <laughs> Possibly. You know, what's funny is, you know, when a lot of people, and a lot of lawmakers and regulators that I talk to these days, um, when they think about hackers as criminals, I point to the fact that before Microsoft ever paid a dime to hackers, um, over 200,000 non-spam email messages a year were coming in from helpful hackers trying to report security vulnerabilities to Microsoft for free. So when people question the motivations of hackers and say, well, they're just going to go to the highest bidder or they're just going to do X, Y, and Z, no, they will not. Absolutely not. Um, human nature is much more complex. And a hacker, as far as I can tell, these days are still human. And so their motivations are ranging across altruism, capitalism, everywhere in between. And what I really want to see is for there not to be such a hard choice between making money and getting something fixed. And it's interesting that you bring up this caricature of a hacker as a criminal, because, I mean, we can go all the way back to the 80s with war games when Ronald Reagan saw a movie that basically freaked him out. And it led to the passage of the cons uh, consumer Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, known colloquially among tech policy people as the CFAA. And um, this was in the 80s. Things have changed a lot since then. But what might not have changed is just the general public perception that hackers are bad people, that they're criminals. And you see this in different ways. In the show Mr. Robot, they're all very kind of alternative looking people, you know, dressed like hipsters, and they're totally anti-corporate. The whole point of them is to go after corporations, hack them, and bring them down, right? So that's not exactly a symbiotic relationship. And then you have a certain presidential candidate characterizing hackers as 400-pound people on their couches. But how do we have this gulf between reality and fiction when we're talking about hackers? And is that actually leading to bad policy? The fact that people imagine in their minds these shadowy people, whether it's WikiLeaks or Anonymous, you don't think of them as good people. Well, certainly uh, having spanned the, the generations of hackers myself, I have definitely seen our evolution culturally and our evolution in popular culture 
perception of us. I think Mr. Robot comes closest to, you know, some of the the hacker spirit. But you also have the reality where you were asking about, you know, does this result in bad policy? Um, certainly the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has been something that we have been struggling with as a community and especially as those altruistic types who are trying to report vulnerabilities to get them fixed. When those people are threatened by CFAA or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, what it does to the next generation of hackers is what I'm really concerned about because it teaches them that, in fact, they can't trust authority. They should not come forward with important and vital information that their very freedom might be threatened by doing so. So I think that uh, popular perception definitely needs to catch up with the fact that hackers, just like the rest of, of society, most of us actually do not want to watch the world burn. Um, I know that some of, you know, some people across, you know, all disciplines probably do. But if you think about it, those of us with the power to bring down our technological world and friends of mine, uh, members of a hacking group called The Loft, famously testified before Congress about 18 years ago, saying that the internet could be brought down by a single packet in about 30 minutes. Not that much has changed in terms of our ability to defend the internet. But if it were true that all hackers were criminals, we would not have the amazing and incredible internet that we have today. And what is the line between hacker and criminal? So let's say you're 14, right? That's the cutoff for being able to do some work in this country. You get your working papers. And let's say you, you're brilliant. You're a brilliant hacker. But how is someone who's spent their whole lives with computers supposed to know the legal ramification? And how do you know what that line is? there a line between I'm doing this to help you, but I could go to jail? Like, is, is an average person ever going to know where that line is based on the current law? What's been <clears throat> incredible about um, the emergence of bug bounty programs is that they actually define what that line looks like for the company in question or the organization in question. They define the scope of what they would like to see in terms of what security vulnerabilities are we looking for and where are the places and what are the types of techniques that we don't want you to use. So we don't want you to do to launch a distributed denial of service attack against us. We would prefer you did not do that. So please don't. That's them defending, you know, defining their own line. And I think that's incredibly helpful, not just for the hackers in the world, but I've talked to many prosecutors, federal prosecutors, and they actually have said they love bug bounties because it makes it so clear what that line is. They also love traditional vulnerability disclosure programs where an organization has set a policy and said, these are the kinds of issues we're most interested in hearing about. Please don't DOS us. Please don't attack you know, our physical locations or threaten or intimidate our employees. They basically say, these are the lines we wish you not to cross. And if you don't cross them, then we can go ahead and offer you, you know, essentially this protection under the law. Um, in fact, at Microsoft, one of the first things that, that I helped do there was put one line in an FAQ on a web page saying, for our online services, we would like to hear from you. If you report a vulnerability to us in online services, which is technically illegal to even have found it um, under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, we said that we will not pursue legal action against you. And so that was back in 2007. Um, and that was one of the first major companies to make such a declaration to basically tell those laypersons who are not lawyers, but they may be hackers, exactly what the line is. So you just mentioned how when it comes to the private sector, the companies and the hackers have a degree of control over the process and the bounty program that can 
almost really circumvent the law because it would require Microsoft to actively press charges against a hacker who did something good but technically violated the law. But that whole situation gets more complicated when you introduce government into the equation. And when we talk about major hacks that make the news, you've got Sony, you've got Target, you've got a lot of private companies, but then you've also got the IRS, the Office of Personnel Management, tens of millions of federal employees having their resumes and their first cover letter written for a job plastered all over the internet. Now, the implications of hacking a Microsoft might mean I can rely on Microsoft to not go after me afterwards because we've talked about this and I'm operating within what they want. But what about the Pentagon? And you played a very significant role in spearheading the first Pentagon bounty program, which I believe started in April of this year. How is that situation, because it's government, different than the Microsoft situation? Well, that is a very good question. And so the government, as you know, has to deal with not just um, criminal type of hackers, but it also has to deal with attacks from nation states. Um, And uh, the protection that it has to be able to afford itself, um, it's a little bit different than what a private company would have to to go through or, or be able to say. So a private company can say, you know, if you stay within these boundaries, we won't pursue legal action against you. Whereas a government um, might not be able to say such a thing lest they, in fact, provide authorization to nation state level hackers in doing so. So they actually have to be a lot more careful about how they phrase things when they offer a public reward or a bug bounty program to the public. And what about disclosure? Because when you're dealing with a private company, the equities process, it's another buzzword we hear in tech policy all the time. What are the equities between revealing a vulnerability or keeping it to yourself. There's a cost-benefit analysis that goes on all the time. And when it's dealing with a private company, a company like Microsoft might say, okay, it is better to fix the bug and then tell the world about it or fix the bug and not tell the world about it. And that might have to do with business decisions or moral decisions or things like that. When you're dealing with the government, what does the disclosure situation look like? You know, both for when the government's vulnerability is discovered? Does that get disclosed to other people or when government finds a vulnerability? I mean, what does that look like? Because I know that a lot of civil society groups and privacy advocates are very keen on this question of when the government has to disclose. Well, in the first part of that, if the government has a vulnerability in its own systems, it usually can follow the same types of rules that a private industry, um, you know, breach might follow, which is, do I have to have any of my users take action? In which case, if they have to have the users take action, such as change passwords, et cetera, then they do have to disclose, obviously, saying, users, please take action because of the following breach. Um, They might not have to disclose all the details, though, especially if they haven't uh, been able to fix all all instances of the same vulnerability. Because you may have one vulnerability or a breach found in one area, and then you realize that, oh, you know what? I'm using that same module across all these different web properties. And while I can close it down in this one area, it's going to take me some time to finish the investigation on the rest. And they might not disclose the extent of all of that. But so that's that's kind of case one, where it's the breaches in in the, um, uh, the government's own systems. 
In the other case, where a government may become aware of or acquire a vulnerability or an exploit, um, they have other reasons and other uses that they have for those things. For example, um, our government and many other governments engage in offensive uh, cybersecurity um, events, and, uh, and they might feel like they need to use some of the information that they have. Um, so you can imagine a situation that might be harmful to a consumer, but beneficial to government, where the incentives are not aligned. For example, government is conducting surveillance for counterterrorism purposes. And in the process of conducting the surveillance, they realize that there's a massive vulnerability at a tech company. And rather than disclose that vulnerability, they say, our priority is to figure out who's doing this. So we're going to leave this here and look at it and try to figure out who's doing it. Is that a problem? Because now the government thinks it's more important that we keep this a secret so that we can do our jobs, almost like following a criminal to see where he's going instead of just catching him when you already know he's done something bad. Is that a problem for consumers? Is that a problem for companies? This idea that government might have different incentives than the cybersecurity imperatives of a private company who is accountable to its shareholders and its customers. Well, any time that vulnerability information is known to one party and not known to people who either need to protect themselves or fix the vulnerability, there is an inequality in terms of that information and that balance. Um, I think when the government puts together its, its you know, thoughts about how to deal with individual vulnerabilities, they're weighing these things and they're weighing the risks. So they're weighing the likelihood of rediscovery of that same vulnerability by a bad actor. They're weighing the ease of exploitation. Like there might be a hole, but only, you know, maybe the top 1% of ninjas in the world could possibly write an exploit for it. <laughs> they're weighing all these different factors and they're also weighing its usefulness. So I think that all of it does come down to, um, to a gauge of risk and relative risk. Now, personally, do I think that it's a good policy to, you know, to have governments, our own government included, um, you know, basically stockpiling vulnerabilities for, for offensive use? No, I think that's, that's ultimately um, bad for defense. It's bad for security. And I think there are other ways that, uh, that an attack-oriented arm of a government can maintain their attack capabilities without withholding individual vulnerability information. For example, most vulnerabilities that are known in the world are still not patched. So you can actually get away with not using unknown vulnerabilities that are being kept from the, the software maintainers. You can actually use a lot of known vulnerabilities for a lot of your objectives and a lot of techniques that are very difficult to detect um, that are attack techniques that don't rely on a particular zero day. If one of the roles of government in even a very libertarian sense of small government, life, liberty, and property, protecting against attacks, should the government join the fray when it comes to trying to find bounties? You know, you've got, you can have a 14-year-old trying to, you know, make some money for his family or whatever. You've got lots of people out there with hacking skills trying to figure out vulnerabilities, either to be benevolent or to be profit uh, motive or the profit motive. But what about government? I mean, should government proactively try to find vulnerabilities as a as part of its role of protecting consumers and protecting companies? Or is there too much danger in having a government as powerful as ours jumping into this fray trying to find bugs? 
Well, I think the the only real danger is in the capacity of whoever is receiving those bug reports. And so while it's while it would be interesting to see a government bug hunting program or maybe even a government sponsored bug bounty program for private software that that's been suggested by by one of my old friends Dan Gear um, from from AtStake and from the AtStake days and he's now at Incutel. But um, Dan had suggested that if vulnerabilities are scarce then the government should just outbid all of the offense market buyers and just buy them all up. But the fact of the matter is vulnerabilities in software are not scarce. They are, in fact, fairly common. And you would quickly overwhelm the response team of any organization that wasn't themselves initiating that bug hunting or bug finding program. So I just want to highlight a a line from an op-ed you wrote in, uh, it's called The Time has come to hack the planet and the publication is called threat post, which is just the perfect name. Uh, and then you can give us any final parting thoughts, but you wrote quote, we live in interesting times. Our dependence on technology is growing faster than we can secure it. However, now more than ever, we have the ability to engage with a global community who have the skills and desire to use their powers for the greater good End quote. So if it's true that the internet has evolved where security has not been the primary concern and convenience and user experience have just totally outpaced cybersecurity, are we now at a turning point to correct that balance? I think we are at a turning point to tap into this global talent pool. Um, I remember growing up and thinking to myself, well, it's cool that I can break into computers, but what am I really going to do with that? Because at that, at that point in time, there wasn't really a way to monetize those skills. Um, so I took a detour and was a biochemist for a minute. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the strange paths we lead. But um, but I think that today we have our dependence on the Internet. We have this growth in technology that is exponential, and we can't source the talent fast enough to secure it all. So using this global marketplace and using the talent from around the world who are willing to help especially those who are willing to, you know, go ahead, find a lot of this low-hanging fruit and get it cleaned up. I think that's an amazing use of the global economy. And it's, it's really our only hope to recruit as many people as we can who have these skills. Well, Katie, in typical DC fashion, it only took about 50 back and forth emails to schedule this. So I'm happy to finally have you on the show. Um, I know you're very busy doing all this stuff. So I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been very interesting and informative for our listeners. So thanks a lot. My guest has been Katie Masaurus, founder and CEO of Luda Security. You can check out her op-ed, The Time Has Come to Hack the Planet. We will link to it in the show notes for today's episode. That's it for today. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at mediatechfreedom.org. Let us know what you think of the show. Feel free to pitch topics and guests. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.